I guess your boy's doing a podcast. All right, let's do it. All right. What's the date? Oh, February 18th. Hey, gang. Wes Buck here, Drag Illustrated Magazine, checking in. It is Tuesday, February 18th. It's three in the afternoon. It's like, I feel a little bit out of my comfort zone. This isn't my, this isn't my normal time slot. But, man, we had to start over. I... There's so many things to talk about, but I have to start with just the podcast. We had so much momentum going with the podcast. Everybody is excited. I'm excited. The The numbers are good. And we got busy late in 2019. And I just quit doing it. I did. I got busy. Other things, pressing, pressing happenings in my life. And I thought, okay, I've got to prioritize certain things. And unfortunately, the podcast just kind of fell off the map. On the, on the good side, on the positive side, however, I knew that whenever I brought it back, whenever we brought it back in 2020, I wanted to like rededicate myself to it, make sure that we were doing it at least weekly. I was working up notes. Like when I was really in my zone with the podcast, I was writing stuff beforehand. I was taking notes, like doing it like a late night show. I would literally write little bits in my head, take little notes on my phone and I feel like it translated into really good episodes of the podcast where, you know, I'd go on these crazy stream of consciousness things that I'd thought a little bit about. It was somewhat primarily off the cuff, but I had thought about it and thought about some of the points I wanted to make. Then whenever I was trying to get myself fired up to, to relaunch this whole deal and start all over, it's like, okay, do I pick up where I left off and kind of continue with that format or do I do something different? And I started looking around at all the stuff that existed on the internet and that I liked. Like, what are the formats that I liked? What are the the podcasts that I liked? So then I tried to reverse engineer, which anybody who spends a lot of time with me knows that that's kind of like my thing. If I see something that I think is working really well or that I think is exceptionally good, how can I reverse engineer that? How can I replicate that, do it my own way or take what I see as very successful and make it my own? So here we are. I bought some equipment brought in uh, some help and it just everything I felt like I needed to make this thing be what I wanted it to be. So here we are. And I'm just going to treat this like a fresh start. It's number one. I mean, if I was going back, I started this process. Trust me. I started, I pulled up Facebook and waited like six days for it to load. Cause I feel like it's kind of clunky and I'm clicking through all the videos and all those Wednesday live shows that I did and all that. And I'm looking, I'm like, man, I've done this like 150, almost 200 times. You know what? Screw that. Let's be honest. Let's just call it number one. So this is, this is number one. This is video podcast number one, and I'm excited. And it felt like a good time to do it. We're a couple days removed from Lights Out 11. Somehow, some way, the 11th annual running of Donald Long's crazy production down in Valdosta, Georgia, South Georgia Motorsports Park. And there's a lot to talk about. First and foremost, I missed the race. It. It, it sucked. It was horrible. I haven't missed this race. And I honestly don't know how long. It's been a long time. Probably since lights out four or five. I think that's right. It's been, it's been a long time since I've not made the race. And it was no controversy. I actually got a text last night and I couldn't help but laugh. I got a text and it literally said, care to comment on your not being at lights out. As if it was like something, as if it was a political move or something, and nothing could be further from the truth. Your boy got sick. 
your boy almost died. I got coronavirus. And no, I got pneumonia. And then it turned into strep, I guess, which I used to get strep when I was a kid. Like maybe once or twice a year, I have huge tonsils. I mean, don't don't tell everybody, but I, I've got huge tonsils. And I used to get strep throat every year. And this wasn't like strep throat when I was like I, when I was a kid. I had this crazy memory of living in this little house my parents had. I think I was in like fifth or sixth grade, and I remember having strep throat so bad. I stayed at home for like most of a week. And for whatever reason, I just watched Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory like over and over. It was a really odd memory, but it is etched. And my parents had shag uh, orange carpet in our house, which was a really questionable decision. And I just remember it like it was yesterday. But I used to get strep throat all the time. And I, I don't know, I never had strep throat like I had it this year because it wasn't a sore throat thing. It was like a debilitating illness. I've never been as I legit thought I had coronavirus. Like I didn't know what coronavirus was, but that seemed like what I had because I was so sick a week ago. I had a 102 degree temperature, sweating through my clothes, coughing, hacking, piercing headache. Uh, It was the worst illness that I've had in a long time. And I fancy myself a pretty healthy guy. I don't get sick, really. Not that often. I take all sorts of pills, and I drink coffee, I drink tequila, I drink red wine, Jesus drank wine. I just, I don't know, I feel like I tick a lot of those health boxes, and I couldn't believe I was really pissed about it, to be honest. And my wife gets mad at me because she thinks, because I get so mad about getting sick, Because that just doesn't happen to me very often. And when it does, it's hard for me to wrap my head around. Like, I'm, I can't remember prior to this endeavor, obviously, uh, a time when I haven't been like at the office for several days in a row. When I wasn't in Saudi Arabia or like out of the country traveling. And I literally, there was like several days that I didn't even hardly get out of bed. It was a weird thing, but I'm on the other side of it. And there's a funny side story about coronavirus that I, that I think is worth acknowledging. I didn't know, this is so funny, and this is just very telling about the way I live my life, unfortunately. I'm pretty disconnected, like, from things that are happening. It's, I'm probably going to get, like, a real rude awakening one of these days, probably. But I just am pretty tuned in to drag racing. That's kind of the, the bulk of what I pay attention to. I watch some football. I watch a little bit of um, NBA basketball, big fan of NBA basketball, but I still don't, I'm not laser focused on it. Like I don't, I'm laser focused on a lot of, on, on drag racing. That's pretty much it. And I literally spent about a week of my life thinking that the coronavirus was a clever marketing ploy by the people who make the beer. I literally, I, I didn't, and I had no reason to question it. I just saw saw a couple posts on Facebook about the coronavirus and I thought, hmm, that, that's funny. I wonder who thought that, golly, they're like coming after Geico, they're coming after the belt. That's a great one. That's fantastic. Like the only cure is a lime cut into fourths. I didn't know. And then I was asking my wife about the coronavirus, like laughing about it. She's like, why do you think it's so funny? I'm like, I think it's great. I mean, whoever came up with that, it's genius. She's like, it's like killing people. There's like 2000 people dead. What are you talking about? And it turns out the coronavirus has nothing to do with Corona light or premiere or extra. It's just, it's actually a virus that's killing people. So I was, uh, 
but it's a fantastic portrait of my life, Wes's life. I just kind of got blinders on when it comes to anything that's not drag racing. It's very interesting, but I, Hey, you know, it's, uh, I think Corona should pick it up. I don't, it might not be too late. It's probably too late. It's probably too late. I mean, they're like airlifting people off of boats in the ocean. So it's that ship sailed pun intended. This is a good one. Okay. But I digress. We'll, we'll move on. I, I really wanted to spend today talking about lights out and it's weird because I found myself in a unique position of having to go back and look at the tape because I wasn't there to, to kind of get the sights and smells type of feet on the street perspective. I was tasked with going back and looking at it, looking at videos, looking at people's posts on social and trying to just take in all the different storylines and kind of the high spots. And I wanted to kind of pound through what I feel are a ton of storylines from the biggest, most prestigious small tire drag race on the planet earth. I have to say that to start this whole thing, lights out 11 magic tires. That was the name of the event. And I, it's fitting. I don't love it. I didn't love it. I thought, meh, meh is what I thought. Whenever I heard, when I started seeing the logo, I go, meh, that's what I thought. Meh, magic tires. Felt, felt, uh, that pissed somebody off. Uh, lazy. I don't know. Just didn't feel meh is kind of how I felt. That was my initial reaction. But upon further reflection, it's fitting. It's maybe the perfect name because I think that that's really when I think back on over a decade of radial tire racing, I guess they're magic tires, man. I, I guess that's, that's the takeaway. I don't know that there's a single person involved in this whole scene that could have 10 years ago predicted the performance that we would see out of these cars right now. There's seven, eight cars have been in the three fifties in the eighth mile. Uh, it's, I, I don't even really know for the longest time. Everybody thought the radial tire, the DOT approved radial 315 radial was the limiting factor. And at this point in time, it would, it appears to me, there's not a limiting factor. That's what it appears to me. We're seeing these cars pick up like a 10th from year to year. And in the drag racing world, that's, that's hard. That's insane. And it tells a lot of stories. It tells first and foremost, I would say it tells the story of how early on we are really in kind of the evolution of this particular style of drag racing. This, this is the evolution you see early on. I mean, we, it wasn't that long ago that it was like a big deal for one of these cars to run in the fours. They've picked up a second and a half. It's crazy how fast these cars. I remember in 2005 as the manager of a small eighth mile drag strip in Southeast Iowa, I had a guy come in with a Pontiac Le Mans that had a pump gas Sonny Leonard 632 in it, right? Single carburetor cast aluminum intake. This was a very, very mild combination at the time, it was crazy, but looking back, pretty mild deal. The car went five teens, I think, five teens and five twenties in the eighth mile on a drag radial at like 3,000 pounds. To think about how far radial tire racing has come inside of the last 10, 15 years, it's unbelievable. It's, it's shocking. It's exciting. It's scary. It's a lot of things, man. And it's just, 
I again, I thought the name was a little weak. I thought, man, there's been better. He's had better. But upon further reflection, it's it's magic tires. They're magic tires. It's the performance we're seeing on these tires. It, it's changed our sport in a lot of ways. Whoever would have thought we'd see sportsmen, NHRA class cars running radial tires. And it's becoming commonplace. Now, I mean, the performance we're seeing, a 360, a 370, a 3.7 second run on radial tires at this point in time is kind of a yawn. It, it, there's like a lot of people that do that. It doesn't, it's not unusual at all. So when I think about that, Man, it's really, it makes my stomach turn a little bit. It's, I don't know that we, like right now, if you look at this, I was pulling up this list earlier. Shout out to uh, Brett Kepner, the back of Drag Illustrated Magazine, our uh, top eight. But if you think about these names and the performances associated with them, Melanie Slemmy went 354 earlier this year. Stevie Jackson, 354. Marcus Burt, 355. Brian Markowitz, 356. Daniel Ferris, 357. David Reese, 358. Kevin Rivenbark, 358. There's a lot of stories right there in that in that list of eight drivers in that that's a slew of different combinations. You've got a a twin turbo big block combination. You've got a a couple of procharged Hemi's. You've got a small block screw blown small block. You've got a a Hemi screw blown Hemi, a couple of screw blown Hemi's. You've got a 900 or 1000 cubic inch nitrous engine. It's really crazy how far radial tire racing has come and I don't think there's any I don't think there's any slowing these things down. I don't I think that I hate to say it, but I think my boy Frankie Taylor, Frankie the Madman Taylor's uh door slammer record 348. I think they're coming for it. I really do. I don't think there's there's no doubt in my mind. Yeah. There's no doubt in my mind in this at this point that Frankie's long-standing 3.48 second, 216-ish mile per hour pass at Rockingham in 2014. I was there. PDRA Spring Nationals, Rockingham, North Carolina. One of my favorite racetracks in the world to go to. Just just has an air about it. There's something special about being at this place. And I, I go back to that night and I think about just how visually different that car, Frankie had a C5 or whatever. Yeah, C5 Corvette, yellow, very well-known car. And you think about what Frank, I mean, Frankie was doing this on a budget, right? The car was super lightweight, but I mean, he was borrowed, borrowed tires, borrowed blower belts. I mean, this was a low buck operation. This was ingenuity over everything, right? And the thing clicks off a 348. And I, I think back to just how different it was. Rocker panels dragging, front wheels up in the air. And then you compare and contrast that to like what a fast run looks like in a radial tire car with the front end of the car stuffed down in the ground and the, the, the shocks extending like an old ladder bar car and the ass end of the car all up in the air. It's just, it's crazy. It, you can't make, you couldn't, it couldn't be any different. And it's just, it's very interesting to me. I wonder, uh, for me as a dyed in the wool promo guy, it, frankly, it like kind of pisses me off. Like it, I know that if I was like the czar of pro mod racing, I would have someone at a racetrack right now running as many passes as they had to make to be faster than all radio cars all the time. I would never, I would not stand for it. I would find a way to make sure that pro mod, pro mod cars are faster than radio cars. But 
there's so many nuances to this. I mean, all these series and sanctions and different places and tracks or whatever have their own rules and they're all, again, so many nuances that it's really hard to compare them and have a real serious like apples to apples discussion. All I'll say is that it would it would appear to me that what Mickey Thompson has produced in this 315 series drag radial is as close to a magic tire as we've ever seen. So as ho-hum as I was about the name of this race, it's really, it's a match made in heaven. And I can't say enough about the technology, the time and effort. Mickey Thompson, that whole team there, that company, they've believed in this brand of drag racing basically as long as anybody, almost as long as anybody. And I think about what they've done and the commitment they've made to this type of racing. Because if you think of... For those of us in drag racing, drag radial seems like a really big deal. But in the world of selling tires, I can assure you it's not. It's not that big of a deal, right? There's there's no comparison to the number of off-road tires or just street radials and stuff like that that Mickey Thompson sells to their, you know, their hardest core uh, race drag, you know, radial versus the world competitors. So for them to have made the effort and invested the time and energy and all the testing that's been done to advance this tire and advance the compounds they use. It's all you can do is tip your cap to them. They've done something that I think people will be talking about what this tires represented and what it's done for the sport and the impact that it's had. I think we'll be talking about it for years and years and years to come. They'll be, they'll look back on this. I mean, when we're dead and gone, they'll look back on this, this moment in time where all the fastest race cars in the world had radial tires on them. It's really shocking to me, man. It's uh, mind-bottling. My mind gets all bottled up. It's uh, it's a really weird thing, man. But I don't know. It is what it is. I think that I I never saw... Well, I guess I can't say that because... The, the next big thing for me with radial racing is like when I look at the qualifying sheet from lights out 11, there, there's a, there's a couple, there's like two big things that stick out to me. Stevie fast Jackson, number one, three fifty five with a two that doesn't stick out to me. It doesn't stick out to me at all. The fact that I think the top 10, 12 cars in radio versus the world are all carbon body, double frame rail pro mod style race cars with radials on them. It doesn't really surprise me. It doesn't stand out to me. One of the things that really stood out to me was Tim Slavens in on the bump spot. Now, granted, there was a whole bunch of stuff. There was some bad weather and they shut, they cut the race short, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So no telling where that team uh, led by Joe Oplosky and, and Mark Wardenhausen, Taito himself would have ended up with that very familiar at this point, steel bodied 69 Camaro. I'm sure they would have moved up, but if you look at it, just, kind of pick up this piece of paper and you see that car, a real deal, kind of exactly what you close your eyes and think of when you think of a radial tire car and you see it in the number 32 position on this qualifying sheet on the bump at the bottom. It's hard. And now granted, they didn't make a representative run. So who knows how far up in the rankings they would have been. But if you just, just take this for what it is, a list of the cars that were there and how they finished, how they finished qualifying man, it's a bummer to see a car like that at the very bottom, you know? And it's, I think it, that's a perfect representation of just kind of one of the issues that exist. And I mean, the cat's out of the, uh, uh, cat's out of the bag, right? And that the thing that you can't put the rabbit back in the hat on this. It's, I feel like it's, 
it's way too far gone to, to go back. So all we can do is embrace it. And it's hard not to say that I had plenty of people in my ear over the weekend. Ah, this is just a pro mod show or whatever. Just a pro mod show ain't bad. Just a pro mod shows badass. Pro mods are badass. There's no, no shame in that at all. If, if you want lights out and these races to be what they were five or 10 years ago, that that's there. It's not going to be there. It's not going to be it. That ship sailed. That's not to say that it's not probably some of the best racing in the country. I think it's arguably some of the best racing in the country. The, the competition amongst these different combinations. I mean, I do think there's an argument that could be made. Something might need to change for the big block twin turbo combination. I, I you, you think back how those cars seem to dominate the deal for so long. And now they're definitely on the outside looking in. You think about the screw-blown Hemi deal and how many of those cars are so dominant, not to shortchange Fletcher Cox, Rich Bruder, Nick Bruder, Sean Ayers, and that team, but to come out with a brand new car, first competition outing, and go right to the number four spot in qualifying, right into the mid-360s. Again, very talented group of people, well-financed, no question, best of the best, but to be able to dive in to the thick of things like that, I mean, it is telling, right, that that the technology, the parts and the pieces exist to get into that combination is ex exceptionally favorable right now. There's no doubt about it. And I will say, I know this kind of just from being in the scene a little bit that I, I got to tip my cap to Fletcher Cox because I know he was driving the bus on the move to the screw blown Hemi for that car as the combination that he truly believed was the favorable combination to have. And Man, they made the most of it. Holy crap. I never, I, I'm a big believer in Nick and Rich Brewer. They've been on the cover of the magazine, been on the cover of Drag Illustrated. I've been a big fan of these guys for a long time. Truly believe in them. Rich is a great driver. Nick is an incredible tuner. I think he's really, really establishing himself as a, as a top tuner in all the kind of power management ranks. But I would be lying if I told you I wasn't surprised to see them have this kind of success this quickly. I mean, it's very, very, very impressive. So it's no matter how you feel about the, the style of the cars, it's definitely changed. I don't think it's taken away from the quality of the racing. But times are changing in South Georgia. There's no doubt about it. Times are definitely changing. I think one of the biggest takeaways that I had from the race and huge congratulations to Stevie Jackson and team, uh, Billy Stockland, Phil Schuler, my uh, colleague at drag illustrated, Josh Hatchett wrote an article earlier this week that we published on drag asking, posing the question is Stevie fast Jackson, the greatest racer alive. And I would argue that he's definitely, he's definitely in the conversation R right now. I don't think there's anybody in drag racing that has more momentum, a bigger cult following. This guy's it. This guy is doing something special. There's no doubt in my mind. What Stevie Jackson's doing right now is special. The, the run he had in 2019, you, you feel like that would be fairly hard to top, especially winning the NHRA Pro Mod World Championship. That has become a real kind of ultimate proving ground, the final proving ground for fast door slammer drag racing, the NHRA pro mod drag racing series. Um, it's so competitive. The rules are so strict. The, the conditions are challenging. The schedule is grueling. There's so many things that make that 
particular class and, and that particular series so challenging for Stevie to go out in dominating fashion and win the world championship along with winning a slew of other big outlaw eighth mile races last year. It was, I feel like it would have been hard for him to top that, but he is well on his way. He's two races into the season with two big victories. He's perfect in 2020 and it doesn't look like it's going to stop anytime soon. And what I really speaking specifically to his involvement in outlaw drag racing, what I really see and this is something that you know can upset people and it it's it's hard to hear sometimes but i feel with this podcast and with this format what i've really challenged myself to do is try to be honest i not that i haven't been but i i will admit that i tiptoe around a lot of things right cuz i don't want to piss anybody off and i don't want to burn any bridges and and i've kind of made my living by getting along with a lot of people and maintaining great relationships with a ton of people. And I, I pride myself on that. And I obviously I want to continue it like thumbs up world. I hope oh, we were hope we're cool, but I do feel like I got to be willing to say what I think a little more frequently because I do, I, I run up to it and then I'll stop because I don't want to, I don't want to toe over the line. I don't want to upset anybody, but here's the, here's the cold, hard truth about what Stevie Jackson is doing in Outlaw Drag Radio Racing and Radio vs. the World. He's a professional racer, friends. He's a professional drag racer. When I go down through this list, and this is no... This is no... It's not in... I'm not trying to be mean. It's not a mean thing. It's a fact, right? Stevie Jackson earns his living drag racing, right? So when he... When he goes to work on Monday, that means go to the shop and work on his race car. What going to work Monday for most of these people mean means going to their business or going to their going to Walmart if you're in Tim Slavin's shoes, you know, the guys that manages a Walmart, right? I mean, you you've got a list here. I'm looking at a list right now full of names that people that have jobs, who have businesses, who have responsibilities outside and away from the sport of drag racing. And I, I remember thinking about this in the buildup to lights out Donald and everybody involved in that deal really does a good job of encouraging people to post on social post pictures of your thrash post pictures of your drive whatever you're working on right and I mean and I, I would kind of chuckle a little bit because you just see one post after another like uh, we've worked 187 hours in a row you know haven't slept in five days trying to get ready for Georgia right nothing but Red Bull and crystal meth or whatever. You know what I mean? Just trying to stay awake. All we can do, taking speeders, you know, whatever, trying to stay awake, trying to get ready. And there are all these stories. Well, we're going to put the windows in it when we get there and we're going to mount the body at that truck stop up the road from Valdosta, right? All these people that are thrashing all day and all night to get their cars ready to go to lights out. And I'm certain that Stevie Jackson and company, they had that thing on Projax ready to go two weeks before the race, they probably had two or three spare motors built, several sets of uh, cylinder heads ready to go, maybe a couple, a dozen different torque converters. They had all this stuff ready to go. And I hope that everybody that went deep into eliminations, like 
the aforementioned Sean Ayers and, and the Melanie Salemi and David Reese, especially some of these guys, I hope they all really take pride in the fact that they're out there doing battle against a guy that is a professional drag racer. I tell this story and I've told it before for people that have listened to my Wednesday shows that I did for several years without skipping a beat. I tell this story about the heyday of IHRA Pro Modified, and it's one of my favorite stories. It's one of my favorite stories ever. I used to work for Carl Moyer. Carl Moyer was a heavy hitter in the IHRA Pro Mod days, all throughout the, the mid to early 90s and into the late 90s, I would say. He was a hitter. He had the best stuff. He, Carl Moyer owns a massive car dealership in Southeast Iowa and in, in outside of Des Moines in a town called Ankeny. And very well financed race team. He, he has done very well for himself and never had anything but the best equipment in, in pro modified drag racing. And apparently I was told this story by him of this time that he was, he had been very vocal to the IHRA rule department led up by Mike Baker at that time. He'd been super vocal about how, they need to do something about the rules and blah, 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 blah. Cause the, the roots blown Hemi conversation combination was running away with it or whatever. And that was Scotty cannon. He was talking about Scotty cannon, the man, the myth, the legend. And he, he was constantly ringing the phone of the IHRA trying to get them to change the rules, to try to do something to curtail Scotty cannon, right? One day the phone rings at Moyer's office up there in uh, Ankeny, Ankeny, Iowa beautiful car dealership it, easily one of the most glorious car dealerships i've ever seen you roll up on this place of an evening when their lights are on it's breathtaking truly i mean as breathtaking as a car dealership can be carl chevrolet in ankeny iowa is is that so the phone rings one day carl answers it it's scotty cannon his his arch rival on the drag strip scotty says to carl what are you doing carl it's like a tuesday afternoon Carl says, uh, well, Scotty, I'm at the dealership. I'm actually uh, going over some inventory reports right now. I'm sitting in my office at the car dealership. And uh, Scotty goes, yeah, where do you think I'm at? And, and Carl goes, well, I'm, I'm not really sure, Scotty. Where are you? Well, I'm at the drag strip. And so long as you're at your car dealership on a Tuesday afternoon, and I'm at the drag strip on a Tuesday afternoon, you're never going to outrun me, no matter what the rules are. And I thought about that. Carl told me that story and it's true. And Carl had to acknowledge it because there was, there was nothing he could do in terms of rules or anything else to, to contend with the fact that Scotty Cannon was a professional drag racer on a Tuesday afternoon, on a random casual Tuesday afternoon, he was at the racetrack trying to make his race car faster. What was Moyer doing? He was at his business trying to earn the money that was required to go racing as a hobby this weekend. And I just think that that is a really great example of kind of the world we live in here in 2020. I mean, especially when you go to, you look at these results at lights out 11. And again, it's not a shot at anybody. It's just the fact that most of these guys aren't professional drag racers. This isn't how they earn their living. They have other businesses, even the ones that could argue that it's how they earn their living. They earn their living tuning other people's cars, building other people's cars, doing work for other people. Stevie Jackson earns his living tuning his stuff, right? Getting sponsors to, to ride along with him as he 
gains worldwide notoriety, winning drag races and setting records. And I will say that he, what he's doing right now is as impressive as anything that's been done in a long time. The success that he's having, the brand that he's building is an example for everyone. And hey, man, I tip my cap to him. I think that he is the greatest drag racer alive right now, or he's definitely in the conversation. He's amongst the greatest drag racers alive right now. And I don't think it's going to slow down anytime soon. And I can't congratulate or extend enough kudos to everybody that is so willing to go to battle against guys like that. Guys that are just in their moment, having this moment in the sun. And it's been a prolonged moment for Stevie. So everybody that's racing against this guy, you've got your hands full. And I'm so proud of you for all continuing to fight the good fight. And I think that if there was a most impressive, like if I had to give out a most impressive person or most impressive car award or most impressive, impressive racer award for this past weekend for lights at 11, I'm giving it to David Reese, George's own David Reese. For those of us uh, that are students of the game that have been paying attention to small tire racing for a long time, David Reese is no, is not at all an unfamiliar name. It's somebody, it's a name we've been hearing for a long time. I remember seeing that familiar Reese brothers race car sticker on the back of dozens of Orska cars back in the the heyday of small tire drag racing during the Outlaw Racing Streetcar Association heyday. And David Reese, fantastic guy, and it's great to see him having so much success right now. That car, brand new, self-built, built by Reese Brothers Race Cars, comes out with a screw-blown small block. Y- you got to tip your cap to anybody that's that races the rule book. I think it's really cool to see guys that examine the rules. They they look at all the different op- uh, options and they pick what they think they can win with. And to see that car come out in its first weekend, go to the final round, be consistently in the three fifties all weekend. You really that isn't as impressive of a debut of a race car as I've seen in recent memory. That thing is on rails leaves the starting line violently. It's a really fun car to watch go down the track, and I think he's going to be a problem. I hope, it's my sincere hope, they don't, like that car and that combination needs the opportunity. It needs some, it needs some leash. Let that thing run a little bit. I would love to see some more of that combination. I would love to see some some more cars like that, more diversity in the class. I mean, we already have a ton of diversity, but hey, they, uh, let that thing run a little bit. Sometimes I feel like in, in heads up drag racing, especially outside of like NHRA pro stock, any combination that shows some promise or shows that it, that it may have some potential. It seems like immediately rule makers react and try to do something to, to slow it down or knock it down. I think that happens too fast, too frequently. Sometimes I feel that those, a lot of times that success has been earned. There's been some struggle with it. There's been some, there's been some willingness to take a chance, right? Cause it could have easily not panned out, but because it does oftentimes those guys are pain, penalized. And I just really hope that David Reese and, you know, really a lot of these combinations are given the opportunity to kind of flourish. I do think that obviously the screw blown big block, you know, the screw blown Hemi deal is leading the charge. There were four of four screw blown cars in the semifinals three of which are very similar combinations. And I do think that it's, we don't want this to become pro extreme pro extreme, you know, ADRL, then PDRA pro extreme. One of the, one of the sport of drag racing's real gems. That was such an exciting category. And it just, man, they just ran out of real estate. Kind of, they just, it was, it it was like that class kind of self, 
self-combusted. I don't know. It, it spontaneously combusted is the word. It just, it didn't have the staying power that I think any of us really wanted to see it have. And I hope that we're not kind of just shortening the fuse so significantly with these radio cars with radio versus the world that we're kind of staring down the barrel of something similar. But nonetheless, hell of drag racing. I got it. There's a couple things I want to say kudo wise. I really thought it was great of the it's nice to see these uh, event organizers and promoters make the changes necessary schedule wise to get races done. It seems like outlaw races more often than not a winner was never decided because the race went long, the weather got bad and they ended up having to split it. And I can think of a, a dozen examples of that. And I thought it was fantastic to see the the team there at South Georgia Motorsports Park make the decision to, to, cut qualifying short, go into eliminations and get the race over with. And I think if for no reason, obviously giving racers the opportunity to go home on, on Sunday and drive home is fantastic, but how cool was it to see lights out come to completion in front of a packed house in front of full grandstands, people everywhere. So frequently that race ends, you know, midway through the day or whatever on Sunday or at different times, Monday or whatever. And to see that race end Saturday night under the lights in front of a packed house. I just think that's what those racers deserve. That's a hell of a show. And that's the type of show that is going to have a whole lot of people coming back in 2021. There's no doubt in my mind. I really think the race is going to be the sweet 16 coming up in March. Whenever all these guys are given the opportunity to go, I was going to try to get out of lights out talk. There's obviously a lot of other things to talk about, but we kind of stayed there at the top with radio versus the world. But I really think the race to see is going to be if you're if you're a radial tire fanatic or if you're into this type of racing, the sweet 16 is going to be crazy. If you think about how much the cars typically pick up when they're given the opportunity to make a dozen runs, 10 qualifying sessions and crazy money later. I don't think we're going to see a 340 in 2020 out of one of these cars. But I do think that record's in trouble. It's hard. There's you can't count them out when you give them that many runs. It's such a rare occasion that these guys get the opportunity to establish any sort of rhythm. You saw what happened when it, when Mark Mickey got in a rhythm a couple of years ago. I mean, the, the, the ET record falls by like a 10th. I mean, it just happens so fast because so infrequently, so rarely are guys given the opportunity to race, go make a pass, make a couple tweaks and go back up and make another pass 30 minutes later and 30 minutes later, go make another one. That is such a rare opportunity for this particular group of racers that you really can't rule anything out. I mean, you just, there is no telling and I, I hate to say it, but I really think that 348 mark is in trouble. It's in big time trouble, man, big time trouble. Can't have a race with Donald without having some crazy drama on the internet. That was, I wasn't going to talk about it at all, but again, going back to the point I was making earlier, I don't think it's fair to not acknowledge it. There was obviously big time drama over some comments that Donald made about the police force. And I think it goes without saying ill-advised. I, I, I was shocked. I, I think that Donald has built his brand on the back of being polarizing. He's this guy that people love with like a, a undying passion and hate equally strongly. 
And I, I think it's been very effective for him. He knows what he's doing. I, I do think that there have been several instances over time when he's towed up to the line and instead of sticking like one toe over, just dived over it, just jumped over the line. He definitely did that. I don't, people that know the guy know that he's not, I don't think that, I, I do believe a lot of what you see out of Donald Long on the internet is this shtick. It's a it's a persona that he's embraced and I think it's a prime example of of like of why you should think a little bit or, or take a deep breath before you tweet or before you go live on Facebook. I will say that I've actually I was as turned off as I was by the comments themselves. I was equally turned off by the outrage that ensued. I'm just exhausted by it. And I just, there's other things going on, man. I mean, and again, maybe I talked earlier about how I just don't, I have blinders on a lot. I, I pay attention, super close attention to drag racing. And I don't, I don't fancy myself a big fan of a whole lot of other things. I just, I'm heavily invested in drag racing. And I also like my family that's, you know, and music and movies or whatever, but some good food, red wine. I I mean, I've got some hobbies. Don't get me wrong, but I just was shocked at the, it's become a national pastime to get pissed about stuff. And I'm just, I mean, I'm, I'm not willing to talk about it right now. Cause I just, we got better things to talk about, but I encourage all of you, man, to just take a deep breath. It's okay. No, it, everybody's going to be all right. We've got bigger fish to fry worldwide. The sport of drag racing is in a phenomenal place here in 2020. And I'm glad that they had a successful event down there. That's one of the things that we need more of. We need events that are successful. We need events that are packing the stands that are causing traffic jams that are causing turmoil with the local police force. I don't know. I mean, I just, I, as much as I hated to see that whole deal unfold, spending a ton of time debating, you know, the, the, the rights and the wrongs of the world. It just feels, it, it just feels like a waste of time. It really does. And, and again, man, it's, I call it outrage porn. It seems like people are on the internet, just scouring for something to get sideways about. And if, if we would invest that kind of time and energy in the, all the awesome things that are going on in the sport right now and in just in the world in general, man, I think we'd all be better off for it. We'd all be way, way, way better off. So, uh, but you can't have, uh, Donald Long can't put on a race without there being some kind of big drama. So I wasn't at all surprised. I think every year, two or three times a year, you're just kind of waiting to see what it's going to be. What's going to be the big, what's going to be the big thing? What's going to be, you know, who's going to get into it? Who's going to get into the internet argument? And, you know, I don't know, whatever. I'm, uh, not good. Wasn't good. I will say, if we're going to bitch about stuff, one thing I'm 100% out on is double entries in all these classes. That, for the life of me, I can't figure out the purpose of it. I understand the financial implication, but I can't imagine that it is significant enough to justify the, the, the chaos that it creates. I look at these qualifying lists, and it's hard to even decipher them because you don't even know what's real. What, who does this guy even mean to be in this class? I don't think he means to be in this class. It's so hard to follow. And it's not like our sports, not complicated enough guys. You're going to give me a frick. I was all, I had the coronavirus. I don't need an aneurysm. And that's 
these double injuries, or excuse me, double entries are going to lead to a double injury. It's very complicated and I can't take it. So I'm just going to throw that out there. I think double entries is a practice that exists in bracket racing. It works there to some extent, whatever, but I think it needs to stay there. I don't think it has a place in heads up drag racing, pay to test, go rent a track, whatever. And I've often, I thought about this earlier. I wonder how many of those double entry runs. I wonder if there's an example that someone could give me of when a double entry run, somebody has made a test run and open comp that saved their season, that that was the run. Because I would argue that there's some psychology at play that when you think you have all these runs, maybe they're less significant. Like maybe if you knew you only had one run or you only had two. You see where I'm going with this? I just wonder if, not that you're going to take extra special care, but maybe you'll take extra special care. Maybe if you knew you're only going to get one shot, I don't, I'm more impressed by that. I'm more impressed by that. And I don't think door slammer drag racing needs any help being confusing. There's like 70 different radial classes. There's 4 million classes in drag racing to begin with. It's hard enough to follow. Let's leave well enough alone. Everybody else is bitching about stuff. So I get to one, I get one. Oh, there was a big one that one of the biggest I can't get over. Speaking of people going insane on the Internet. Wow. How about this live streaming situation? I. Wow. I don't know that I really thought. I never really imagined that it would be as big of a deal as it was. I remember walking through the halls of the PRI show back at the end of 2019. I was walking along. I remember I was along one of those concrete block walls and I was actually trying to like kind of keep my head down because I was, I was either late for a meeting shocker or on my, I was on my way somewhere that I had to be. And I was in a hurry and I remember walking along trying to, I think I was doing the look at your phone thing, like look confused and look at your phone, walk fast, look at your phone, look confused people will leave you alone. So I'm doing that, doing that dance, burning down. And I, someone grabs my arm and I look over and my, Oh, James Lawrence speed video, power auto media. And he drops it on me. He goes, Hey, I know, I know you're in a hurry. I'm in a hurry too, but we're going to complete pay-per-view deal in 2020. And I'm like, Oh, whoa, that seems like big news. So tell me more real quick. And he basically gives me the 30,000 foot view of their, subscription-based service that they're going to broadcast all these races for free, like 60 events in 2020, not charge the promoters anything. But because of some things going on in the live streaming world, which he didn't give me a lot of details on, they were going to be forced to switch to a pay-per-view format. And I said, okay, yeah, I mean, it makes sense to me. I understand. So we'll we'll talk about it more later. Over the course of the following weeks, I was given the opportunity to really kind of get kind of take a deep dive into this whole thing. And I, yet another thing that is shockingly polarizing, shockingly polarizing. I think that for those that don't know, for the uninitiated or people that haven't been following along this whole conversation, speed video burst onto the scene a few years ago as a live streaming uh, provider for, for drag racing events. This was 
they they pop onto the scene to compete basically head to head with Bang Shift with uh, Motor Mania. Motor Mania, I would I would say was like leading the charge. They had multi camera setups. Uh, Bang Shift had more of a stationary camera setup. They would have like a single camera on a scaffold uh, down track, but it was a great option for a lot of promoters because it was it was affordable. It was something that they could do and and it not cost tens of thousands of dollars. Where Motor Mania was kind of trending towards a multi-camera production and satellite truck or whatever, and it was getting pretty expensive. Um, I we actually partnered with Motor Mania in two thousand seventeen. 2017 to broadcast the the World Series of ProMod in Denver, Colorado at Bandemir. They did a phenomenal job for us, but it was an expensive endeavor. We had to pay them. We, we you, you pay to have them come out, and they they it's quite the production. It's an expensive deal. So, and especially for promoters who are basically getting nickeled and dimed at every corner. It's hard, man. Like doing these races is very very challenging. Everything's so expensive from from track prep compound uh, to EMTs to parking help to your, your, I mean, everything about it is crazy expensive. It's unbelievable what it takes to put on a drag race. So speed video burst on the scene and they kind of flip the script. They're going to offer the production part of it to promoters for free in exchange for the opportunity to sell commercials on top of that content. And for a f- several years, I think it was modestly successful. I don't think it was as su- successful as they wanted it to be. It's a relatively limited number of advertisers to go after. Uh, and it was a challenge. It was a challenge for them, especially over late in 2019. I don't even know exactly when this merger happened. Uh, I'm not, I think it may have, it happened, I believe in the fall of 2019, basically Vimeo bought Livestream, which is a company, a live streaming company that provided a platform for people around the world to live stream their events. Well, that was the platform used by Speed Video. So all of a sudden, the cost of bandwidth goes up by like 10 times. Instead of spending, I think the number I was told was somewhere around like $25,000 a year annually with live stream on bandwidth to do what Speed Video does and, and broadcast all these events all across the country, that number went from like $25,000 to $125,000 or more. It went way up. So all of a sudden the model doesn't work anymore. James Lawrence, Speed Video, their whole team, they're forced to like circle the wagons and figure out they're back to the drawing board. How can we change this? And there's so much. They did a ton of research and, you know, technically at every level, I compete with James Lawrence and Speed Video uh, and Power Auto Media, excuse me. Power Auto Media owns Speed Video, which also owns dragzine.com, which is one of our competitors at Drag Illustrated. Um, I'm close with a whole bunch of the, those guys, and James Lawrence and I have actually become very close over the last several years, and, and I think James is a great a great thing, great person for our industry. He just got elected uh, chairman of SEMA. He's, a, he's definitely an asset to the sport of drag racing, so whenever he brought this whole situation to me and we talked about it, it made sense to me. I understand that there's no one in the world that's going to be just stoked to have to start paying for something they've been getting for free. That's just a tough situation. Like if you've been getting HBO from dish for free for six months because some sort of clerical error and all of a sudden you have to start paying for HBO or you lose it, it's going to piss you off. Like you're going to be bummed about it. And I think that, 
this is just going to be a little bit of a painful process for everybody involved. I know me personally, and I, I understand that not everybody is, uh, you know, I'm blessed. We're, we're, our business is strong or whatever. So when I think about having to spend a hundred or 150 bucks a year to be able to watch 60 live stream drag races, whether I watch them all, whether I watch five minutes of them, I'm, that's 150 bucks that I'm pretty happy to spend. Right. I mean, if I can put 150 bucks into the, the till for the betterment of the sport of drag racing for knowing in the back of my head that this is keeping this business propped up. It's also putting money in the pocket of a promoter. All those things make me feel pretty good and I'm okay with it. However, I understand that that's a lot of money to some people and that, that, that it's a, it's a big spend. It's a big ask and it's, it's going to be I think it's going to be met with some resistance. There's no doubt about it. It has been met with some resistance. It's quite obvious at this point, but I don't, I think their hands are tied. It's such a difficult situation and it's the expectation has become so high. I don't, you don't have a lot of options. I've thought a lot about this. You know, there was a lot of people that believed the answer was just to switch to a complete pay-per-view model where if you want to watch XYZ race, you just charge them 20 bucks or the price varies dependent on the, 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 the significance of the race. So like maybe a, an event like lights out this past weekend, maybe that's a $20 race, right? And then maybe, you know, someone else's race, you know, in a few months or whatever is a $5 race or a $10 race. And that kind of opens a whole other can of worms of people being pissed off about how their race is valued. But there's a whole lot of science that supports people grow tired of that. If they have to get their wallet out all the time, I believe the UFC is going through this right now. It's like invoice fatigue. You just get tired of having to get your wallet out, having to get your wallet out. And as many drag races as there are on the schedule for a company like speed video, I think tasking people with busting their wallet out every time they want to watch one, it's probably going to be met with some level of resistance. Maybe not, but I, I believe it would be. I think that you may have a handful of events that do really well, but then you're going to have a whole bunch of events that really struggle. And this is just kind of one of those deals, man. It's just a tough. The only other option I felt like they had was to just go rewind the tape 10 years, right? And go back to a one camera, two camera thing or try to massively reduce the quality. But that's no one wants to do that. No entrepreneur is going to be able to get excited about dumbing down whatever it is they do by a lot, right? We all want to get better. We all want to push the envelope. And what I see is a group of people that are trying to push the, push the envelope. They're trying to deliver a high quality multi-camera broadcast and give people really high quality drag racing content on a, you know, a, across a live streaming service. And I wish him well. We're actually partnered with Speed Video on our upcoming Drag Illustrated World Door Slammer Nationals presented by SeaTech Manufacturing, March 6th, 7th, and 8th, Orlando Speed World Dragway, the big one. We're headed down uh, south to uh, put on the biggest pro stock pro mod drag race in the history of the world, and we're very excited about it. And whenever my phone rang and the Speed Video team called and said, hey, man, we want to we broadcast this event. Do you want to be a part of, you, do you want to partner with us? I Absolutely. It made perfect sense to me. I'm excited about the opportunity to make sure the people that can't come to the race are able to watch. There's some argument out there that live streaming these events reduces ticket sales. I've talked to, I can honestly see it both ways. Like I'm, I don't know. 
Like I'm willing to say that I don't know. I don't have all the answers. I feel like the visibility that some of these races have received via a live stream has, there's no question have helped them grow, have helped them grow massively. I, I can't, I don't see a downside. I, my belief is that there is, there's nothing like a live event. It's a completely different experience. If you want, like if you're gonna, if, if it's on your radar to go to a race, if you're thinking about going to a live event, if you can afford the ticket, if you can afford the travel, if, if, if the desire is there for you to go to that event, the fact that it's available on the internet for, for free or at a charge, in my opinion, is not going to curtail you. Like, anybody who's got it in their head that they're going to Lights Out and has been thinking about it all year, I really don't think are going to just wake up and go, you know what, screw it, I'm just going to watch it on the internet. I mean, if you've really got, if you've got a group of friends and you've got some pals that are going to go down there and camp, there's no, there's no way to replicate that experience there's no way to replicate the experience of a live event on a on a laptop. There's just not. I mean, I I I have definitely seen. There's a lot of talk right now, like in the NFL or whatever, that the 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 TV experience has become so good. The multi camera angles, all the different announcers, and you've got the instant replays. Excuse me, and you got the freaking uh, you know the the referees phoning in from New York and there's all these different layers to it. And the freaking on screen graphics are so incredible. You know, fortunately we don't really have that in drag racing. I, I don't think we're fighting that battle yet. We may get there someday. We may get there someday, but I really feel that for the most part sponsors are, I know personally my experiences are that my sponsors want a live feed. When I ring people's phone, asking them about sponsoring the world door slammer nationals. They ask me about a live feed. They do. I'm just telling you, that's just literally what I'm, that's what I'm faced with. They want to know that people are going to be able to see it. They want to know that their banners, their, 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 their signage, the, the event is going to be visible to a massive audience outside beyond the scope of the at track audience. It's important to them. And I've said this in a lot of different sales settings or whatever. Sometimes it's not, it's about the one person that sees it. There may be one decision maker that doesn't go to live events, isn't going to go to your drag race, but he does want to be able to get online and see what's going on. And that may be all it takes to get a check signed, right? I mean, sometimes it's just that one person. So I know that in my world, in my life, the live stream is important. So we've got to do it. And I, I understand that there is an argument that can be made. It can, it hurts ticket sales, I'm not convinced that's true. I'm really not. I I just, and I guess, you know what, man? That just puts the onus back on, it's like Uber and taxi cabs. It's hard for taxi cab drivers to get pissed about Uber when they, when they treat their cars like trash cans, right? And they're assholes. Do you know what I mean? Like the onus is on the taxi owner to have a nice car and to treat people great, to show up, and do a great job. And I just feel like 
promoters, the, the onus is on you to put on a spectacular event that is electric, that is well-organized, that is well-run, that, that ends at a good time, that has some nuances that cannot be replicated without being there. I mean, that's the onus is on you to put on a spectacular event that people wouldn't imagine not going to. And it's, and you have to lean on your partners, your, your, your live stream partners to present that image, to make sure that people, when they watch, they feel like they're missing out. You, you have to try to create it's, it's, it should, the live stream, in my opinion, should serve as advertisement. It should be a promotional tool. It's, it's a way to get people to see, to get, to wet their whistle to what you're doing, right? They, they watch it maybe in year one, they watch the World Door Slammer Nationals online, right? Year one, they watch the World Door Slammer Nationals down in Orlando. It's a long way. They're from, say they're from LA, right? Hardcore Door Slammer fans watch Charles Carpenter and Match Race out there in the 80s and they're, they're huge Door Slammer fans, Right? But they can't make it across country. That's a long haul. They can't drive. They can't afford a, a plane ticket, hotels, whatever. I want them to be able to watch the race. But I want them to see something that's so special and so spectacular and so significant to our sport that in 2021, they'd been saving for a year, son. Right? They've been saving for a year to make sure they could go experience for themselves what they watched on that live stream the year prior. That's my hope. And I think that that's the purpose. I, in 2020, we're all tasked with using all the tools that are available to us. Some of the best business advice I ever got was to treat every day like a grand opening. Every day is your soft opening. Give your best stuff away. Give it away. Truly, and, 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 it, and it flies in the face of what a lot of people believe because a lot of people get this chip on their shoulder that they got to get paid, right? I'm of value. I've got to get paid. But I have encouraged people time and time again, give your best stuff away. Give your best advice away. Give your best material away because people will come back. They will. They'll come back and they will pay you to do something specific for them. I've seen it time and time and time and time again. And what I see with a live stream in 2020 to kind of book in this particular conversation, I see a soft opening. I see a way to give our best stuff away, to get it in front of the most people that we can in hopes that they come for more. They come for a special experience. They come for a front row ticket. They come for a VIP pass. They come for a, a pit experience or whatever it is. We got to put our bet, best foot forward. And there's no other way to do it. There's no other way to do it. We all know, we've all talked a million times about how poorly drag racing translates on TV. I can't argue. It doesn't. There's no comparison to being at a live event. There's nothing like the sights, the smells, the sounds, the sensations of being at a drag race. So if I can get someone interested in what I'm doing by way of a live feed, it's on me to sell them a ticket. It's on me to make them want to come be a part of what I'm doing, right? So... I don't think there's, I don't think there's anything, but all we can do is gain by way of the visibility that is created by these, by these platforms, whether it's speed video, whether it's uh, motor mania, whether it's bang shift. And I'm sure there are others, right? There's nothing we can, all we can do is benefit in my opinion. And you know what? If there is someone who chooses 
if there's someone who chooses not to come to your race, not to buy a ticket so they can watch it on live feed, something else would have would have stopped them. A flat tire, a fight with their wife, something else would have stopped them. There's no doubt in my mind. They would have found that's just the convenient thing. That's just what we're all going to blame it on so that we can justify this argument. And you know, the whether or not this pay-per-view format will work for speed video, time will tell, man. The market will speak. That's one thing about it. We'll find out. We'll find out if it's going to work. And I think that the, 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 it's their job. It's their job to make people, it's their job to deliver value. I think they did a great job down in uh, Valdosta, Georgia. I think they kicked this deal off in pretty fine fashion. I sure they're going to have issues. Sure. They're going to have problems. I don't think that's going to go away when you're dealing with the internet. My experience is the shit breaks a lot. It's really inconsistent. No matter in, I mean, my Verizon, Verizon screws up my cell phone service like daily Verizon, not like the local internet company Verizon there. They have problems all the time. It's a very complicated system. So I don't expect perfection out of them. What I expect is a big time effort to deliver value. And I think they made a big time effort to deliver value. They stuck cameras in the faces of racers. I've never seen before. I heard the voices of racers. I'd never heard before. I saw David Reese being interviewed on the top end of a drag race. That alone is worth $25. It is for that man to have worked tirelessly to get to the racetrack, to feel the feeling of having a camera and a light and a microphone stuck in his face after he climbs out of his race car. This is not an NHRA national event, friends. These guys don't get to experience this. It's worth it to pay that money just to make sure that they get to have that feeling that a guy like David Reese, that a, that a driver like Melanie Salemi, that someone like Marcus Burt, they deserve, they deserve to see, to see and be seen. They deserve to be seen by the masses. And I'm just I think the effort that was made to put cameras in front on people and do pit interviews and peruse the pits and all that was phenomenal. That effort alone, if they are able to maintain that throughout the course of 2020 and have that be the norm, I think they are going to be successful. The on track thing that we're going to see that shit somehow, some way, right? We're going to see it. But that other stuff, those pit interviews, I know from experience, this stuff takes balls to do. And I tip my cap to anybody who will roll up in the pits with somebody who you don't know and stick a microphone in their face and ask them a bunch of questions for people to, to belittle you on the internet, right? I mean, it is it takes stones and courage to do that stuff. And those guys are trailblazers. They're doing something really significant for the sport of drag racing. So many of those racers have spent their entire lives seeking validation and i'm telling you a whole lot of validation comes from those interviews and just feeling like someone cares someone noticed me someone noticed how hard i tried and speed video in my opinion delivered in spades in highlighting the the men and women that make the sport of drag racing great and i i i'll pay for it i'll pay for it i mean and this what's weird is this is nothing new. It's not. Circle track racing has been a pay-per-view deal forever. Like, I think every event is a pay-per-view deal. And I honestly think this is the way of the world. I spoke with a guy a while back who works in, like, large-scale programming 
buying, like he buys and sells large, large scale programming packages. And he told me that within the next few years, everything on television will be a la carte. You'll pay 99 cents for food channel. You'll pay $1.99 for the ESPN suite. You'll pay $1.99 for the Fox sports suite, and you will pick and choose and piecemeal together your plan. That's what we're staring down the barrel of. So this particular situation really doesn't surprise me at all. And the thing people I kept, kept, kept seeing comparisons to Netflix or comparisons to Hulu or Amazon Prime. Are you on drugs? I mean, you're talking about a niche within a niche within a niche when you're talking about drag racing, right? It's a niche within sports, right? It's it's a niche within motorsports. I mean, it's and then you're talking about heads up outlaw drag radio racing, which is a niche within drag racing. You're going to pay a premium for it. It's not Hulu. It's not Netflix. You're not speaking to tens and millions of people. The pool is fairly small. So you're going to pay a little bit more for it. And I would find a way to be proud to do it. I go to these races and I see people chugging natural light, smoking cigarettes by the, and I'm not trying to tell anybody how to live their life, but most people, if you can afford to find your way to a drag race, you can probably afford to find a way to, to watch one of these races if you so choose. And you know what, man, I'm sure there's going to be all sorts of contests that can be entered to win free passes and everything else as, as time drags on. And who knows where the price point ends up? Maybe they have to reduce the price. Maybe, maybe it goes up. I don't know, but I know that being in business in 2020 is a lot harder than people want to realize. This stuff is not automatic. You have to take chances. You have to try things and you have to find a way to make the math make sense. And I don't know. I respect anybody trying to fight that battle. Anybody trying to make the math make sense. I get it. I feel you. I feel you. So on that note, I'll see you next time. We have a whole lot more stuff to talk about. There's all sorts of NHRA stuff going on right now. The Steve Torrance happening. The, the World Door Slammer Nationals are a couple of weeks away. We obviously have to talk about that. We will check in in the future. We are staring down the barrel of the next few NHRA National events. I'd love to look back a little bit on the season opening NHRA Winter Nationals. There are the Mountain Motor Pro Stock season is upon us. We have... Uh, Jed Coughlin announcing his retirement Jason Lyon announcing his retirement so many different things to talk about but we'll do it next time I promise <laughs>